0: Luke chapter 10 this morning, and you're going to need something to write with if you have it and a piece of paper to scratch something down this morning, so dig that out. There's probably some grandmotherly type in your row who has all that stuff in her purse. Just ask her. I didn't look up when I said that, so... Come on, you know it's true. You know it's true. Tony got yours. Yep, she's a grandmotherly type. While you're uh, getting settled there, let me, um, let me encourage you about something. If you get the weekly emails, um, and, and do me a favor when you get those weekly emails, actually read those things because there's some important stuff in there. I know some of you are like, oh, it's from the church. Delete. <laughs> I know, because you've told me that. You've told me you do that. When you get those emails, there's, there's some interesting stuff in there. But in this last email that Jarena sent out on Thursday, um, we had in there a link for registration for the Summer Marriage Intensive. And, and I, I want to just give a couple words on that. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in my many years of being married is, is that over time, I let things slide. Anybody else? Husbands are now being nudged by their wives. <laughs> and, and we let things slide. And, and one of the big things that we let slide is, is our commitment to our marriages and, and the things that are important. And Tuesday nights in June, June 1st, June 8th, the 22nd and 29th, I'm going to ask you to make an investment in something important, your marriage. Is your marriage important enough to invest in? And, and, and it doesn't mean that if you come to this that you're like admitting we are in big trouble. No. No. No one is going to be standing there taking pictures of who walks through the door and is like, yes, there they are. they are the people. Um, the intent is, though, for us to gather And to to reacquaint ourselves with what God has to say about our marriages. Now, that might scare some of you. It scares me. Because here's the thing. I know that I'm not getting it right all the time. Anybody else in there with me on that? I'm not getting it right all the time. And and so I think we all need to sharpen up. Um, This summer marriage intensive is for those who are married those who are newly married, still living the honeymoon dream, whatever that was. Those of you considering marriage who, thinks it's, who think it's all a honeymoon, you won't when you're done. But it is an important thing, and I would encourage you to, to join us for that. And you can click on that link and register. The only reason that I would ask you to register is, is we're going to be supplying some materials for it, and I want to make sure that I have enough for you as we begin that. So... Luke chapter ten this morning. Um, in my life and ministry, I have observed this. I have observed that that the subject of priorities is a popular. And it is a well-worn-out subject for sermons, for books, for articles. Um, you, go to, you go to Amazon or you go to, to Christian book distributors online and you put in the subject of Christian books on priorities and all of a sudden it's like, boom! And, and Christian books on time management and all these things. And, and, and it, it is something that, honestly, I think preachers just pick because it'll preach well. It'll make people feel bad, like they're not doing enough, and, and after all, we've done our job if we make you feel bad when you leave here this morning. Okay? That, and I think that's sometimes what happens. I grew up in an era where, where and I grew up in, in, in a pretty conservative Christian background, that, that the measure of one's commitment to Christ was measured by the amount of time that you spent in the church building. Anybody else can relate to that? Oh, yeah, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and if you're a good Christian, you showed up on what other night? Wednesday, and if you're a really good Christian, you showed up on Thursday to go evangelizing. Anybody else relate to that? That, that was my experience growing up. And, and, and honestly in my growing up years my formative years i looked around and 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 i and i i just compared myself to other kids cuz after all i was a kid right and 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 the ones that were always there were the ones who were the ones who were considered to be really spiritual now they were the ones that were my buddies that were like cuss up a storm they would drink they would do all this stuff but they showed up to church and the evaluation was, was if you came to church, you were godly. In fact, if you really came to church a lot, you were godly. And I'm all for the body of Christ being taught and worshiping together and being here together and hearing the preaching of the word and sharing in life in common. I'm all for that because I think God's word is for that. But that is not the measure of godliness, is it? It's not the measure of godliness at all. It's not the measure of commitment to Christ. And and throughout my years, I I have seen different people try to bring different things in as to a determiner of what commitment to Christ is. And, And the text of scripture that we have this morning in Luke chapter 10 nails, nails it for us nails what is the ultimate priority for those of us as a believer. This morning, when we're done here, there should be no doubt in your mind, if you're the child of God, what your one thing is to be. What your one thing is to be. Now, the, what's going to be in question, though, is, is whether or not you really take it seriously. That, that's what's going to be in question. There's going to be no question as to what your one thing should be. But, but the question's going to be is whether or not you, you really believe that. So I asked you to get out something to scratch on and, and it's something to write with. And I want you to do something for me this morning. I want you to take your typical week. So that's, that's seven days, 24 hours a day, okay? And I want you on that piece of paper to, to kind of in round numbers write out how you spend your time. Okay? Take out the sleeping time, but your, your awake time. I want you to sketch out for yourself. I'm not going to ask to see the paper when we're done here, okay? But, but I want you to think about how much time do you spend working? Put that down. How much time do you spend working? Kids let me help you out. Your number one thing will be how much time do I spend playing video games? Okay? Sketch that down for me, okay? That's your work after all, isn't it? Okay? Some of you, how much time do I spend on social media? That goes for adults, too. Okay, now after work, how much time do I spend just taking care of life? Like the laundry, the bills, the cooking, the going to the store, and that. You working on that? Okay, write that down. Get that down. Sketch that in there. Some of you are like, you are really depressing me right now. How much time do you spend for free time? Sketch that in there. Like, what is free time, right? Sketch in there how much time you, you spend, you spend um, taking care of yourself. If you take long showers, that's going to add up, OK? Get a good idea of what your week looks like. And then I want you to now, after you evaluate what your week looks like, I want you to look. Look at that piece of paper. You sketch that down. And I want you to ask yourself two questions. How much of the time do I spend during the week? How much of it is on important stuff? Okay? When I'm I'm looking at the stuff that you do, how much of it is important stuff? And then I want you to ask this question. How much of my time is spent on things that will last for eternity? How much of my time is spent on things that will last for eternity? Because after all, look up here. Are you going to spend more time in this life or in the life to come? Are you sure of that? But this life is pretty important, though, isn't it? I mean, after all, it's kind of important to go to work if you have a job, isn't it? That paycheck is pretty important, isn't it? Making that house payment is pretty important. Having food on the table is kind of important, isn't it? And so what happens is, and, and the reason I went through this exercise is is to remind us all that time is very precious, is it not? Time is very precious. We, we can't go back and get do-overs for stuff that we did wrong yesterday. I can't go back and, and redeem the time from yesterday, can I? I can't say, man, I wish I would have, would have not spent so much time, you know, getting into rabbit holes on Twitter yesterday about political things that aren't going to really matter. Time is precious, and we need to manage it well. We need to utilize it well. And to utilize our time well, we've got to set priorities, don't we? If you're going to make the most of the time that God's given you, you've you got to have certain things that are, that are important to you that, that you focus on, right? Because here's what I know about life. And people in our lives, everybody thinks they have the most important thing for you, don't they? Your employer thinks that he or she is the most important person in your life. Do they not? They, they believe that. Your employer believes that. Your dog thinks you're the most important person, right? All around you, there are people and things that are crowding into your life that think that, that they are the most important thing. And so our text today, in just a few short verses, cuts to the matter of what's the one thing? What's the one thing? So I've had you turn to Luke chapter 10. Let's go to verse 38. We're just going to go from verse 38 to the end of the chapter, verse 42. You follow along as I read. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. which will not be taken away from her. Father, this morning we, we come to you and we're reminded that even in these short verses that we've just read, that our Savior Jesus, who loved and corrected Mary and Martha, was also the one who recognized the anxieties and the trouble in, in Martha's life. You are fully aware of what's going on in our hearts. You're fully aware of what's happening in the world around us. You're fully aware of of those things that trouble us. You're fully aware of those things that that keep us awake at night. You're also fully aware of those things that, that we're disappointed about. And I pray this morning that our hearts would be ready to receive your word, to receive your comfort, to receive your correction. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. This is the only gospel that records this account. It's just five short verses. We're not sure of exactly when it takes place because Luke, I think, has selected this this account and put it in this place to, to kind of connect it to the preceding text of Scripture. And the preceding text of Scripture that we went through last week was the parable of the Good Samaritan, which if you remember when we talked about this last week, this isn't just about doing good for other people. The Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, was about salvation. And the fact that you and I can't do good. And we can't always do the right thing. And, and, that, and that we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We saw that in verse 27. And we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we truly love God with our heart, we will love our neighbor. And so that emphasis was there, and Luke is now adding this little account on the tail end of this to tie it back to that. This has to do with loving our God. Now, Luke in his typical fashion is kind of vague. Look at verse 38. He doesn't name the village, because the village isn't important to Luke. Where this takes place is not important to Luke, but what takes place is important. We do know from other scripture, though, where this happens, this happens in the little town of Bethany. That is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. Three siblings live in the little town of Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's very close to Jerusalem. And so most likely, using our, using our minds here, this is Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's ministering in Jerusalem. He's teaching. He's preaching in Jerusalem. And, and he is, after he's done with a hard day of that, he's going back to Mary and Martha's house. Okay. And so we have now, as we begin here, the tale of two sisters. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 58, Jesus has made this statement that he has nowhere to lay his head. He he doesn't have a home base. He he, and he did have friends though. He had people who supported him. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus were some of those people who were right there, who were partners in his ministry. They they believed in what he was doing, they believed in what he was preaching, and so they they offered to him a place to stay. John chapter 11 tells us this, that that this was a kind of unusual friendship for Jesus. It says that he loved these people. He loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus. These people were near and dear to him. This is the same Mary who in John chapter 12, as it gets closer to the Lord's crucifixion, will show up at a dinner party and she will take that that flask, that that box of, of ointment and she'll break it open and she'll anoint the Lord's feet. There is a great love here, and and there's a deep friendship between Jesus and this family. So so understand here who we're dealing with here. We are dealing with close friends of Jesus, okay? These are people who who have probably supported him financially. They've given him a place to live, and, 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 and they want what's best for him. And so as we now follow this account, we see in verse 38 that Martha welcomes him into her house, most likely, Martha is the oldest sibling, okay? And she's kind of the matriarch, if you will, of this family. It's her house. And she assumes the role of hospitality. That's something that's lost in our society today. We have lost the art of inviting people into our homes, haven't we? We've lost the art of spending time with other people. But, but here, Mary and Martha welcome Jesus into their home. And as they welcome them into her or him into their home, there's certain responsibilities that come with that because Jesus comes with a traveling party, doesn't he? He comes with his disciples. And so so women in the room, I want you to think with me. You've got Jesus who is your dear friend. So you're not going to feed him peanut butter and jelly, right? You got Jesus coming to your house and he's also bringing his entourage with him, his disciples. Be honest with me. How many of you does that just like give you an instant headache right now, that much company coming? Yeah. You're like in total stress mode, right? What are we going to do? And so think of Martha here. Martha is doing exactly what Paul would later write in Romans chapter 12 and verse 33, seek to show hospitality. She's wanting to make sure Jesus is well cared for. And let's understand, Martha is the typical type A personality. She's a doer. Some of you in this room can relate to that, right? Only happy when you're doing something, right? Like, if you sit down for even five minutes, you feel guilty doing that, okay? Martha is the doer. And so you can only imagine what she's doing here. There's guest rooms that have to be prepared. we got to clean up the house, we got to get a meal going. If you've ever exercised hospitality, it's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work. And and, and there's a lot of work to do. And and if it's Jesus coming to your house, you want to get it right, don't you? You you want to get it right. You're you're fixing your go-to meal, whatever that is. You, you've got it going. And you've got that going in the kitchen. You've also got, you know what? Oh, there's dust over here in the living room. got to take care of that. And like, here, let me make sure your feet are washed. And, and here, you sit here, Peter. And Jesus, no, 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 don't sit over there. I've got this good seat over here for you. And, and you're busy serving. And there's a lot to do. Contrast that now with Mary in verse 39. Here's Mary... She's the sister of Martha who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. Okay? Now, those of you who are the type A people in the room right now are making some judgments about Mary. Slug. Lazy. Trying to get out of work. Right? Typical teenager, right? What's implied here in the Greek is, is that she was continuing on. And, and, and what I see here as I look at this is, is that Mary had done some of the preparation as well. Mar- Mary had been involved in the preparation as well. But, but now Jesus is there and it's like, what are you going to do? you Are going to just keep on doing this stuff while he's here? And so we find Mary at a place where we find Mary a lot in the Gospels. We find Mary at Jesus' feet. It's interesting that that in the course now, at this point of Jesus' ministry, three times in the gospel, once here in Luke, two times in John, we find Mary in close proximity to Jesus, and in all three times we find her at his feet. Now, is that a mistake that the gospel writers record it that way for us? Here, In verse 39, she's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. Now, you've got the little Sunday school image in your mind right now. Here's Jesus, long flowing robe, you know, the white robe with the blue sash, like that's obligatory for Jesus to be wearing, right? Right? You got that image in your head, and and he's just sitting there, and he looks so perfect. He doesn't look Jewish at all because we Americanize him, I understand, and, 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 and there you have, you have Mary who's just sitting down there right next to him and she's just like, oh, I could sit here and listen all day. But let's understand something. In that culture, she's the last person who should be sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus was a rabbi, right? He was known as a teacher. Guess who wasn't allowed to sit at rabbi's feet? Women, women were not supposed to be at his feet. Literally their culture said, woman, you should be in the kitchen. You should be, you should be serving. And and here's Mary and and she is sitting at Jesus' feet. She's sitting at the place where students would sit and and she is taking this all in. She's taking this all in. And as she's taking this all in, Martha is observing this, right? And is it fair to say that Martha's getting ticked? She's getting ticked. But before we get to that, I told you that three times we find Mary at Jesus' feet. Let me show you the other two times. I don't want you to think I'm not telling you the truth. Go with me to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we have the account of Lazarus, their brother, passing away. And if you remember, Jesus delays his, his arrival at Bethany on purpose. He delays his arrival. He, he waits till he knows Lazarus will be dead. Like, what kind of friend is that? But when he shows up, when he shows up, Martha comes out, and we're going to come to that later on in our, in our message this morning. But, but understand this. We find Mary... And go to verse 28. So, so Martha comes back into the house and reports, and she said, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Mary, Jesus is here, and, and he wants to talk to you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell where? She fell at his feet. Two times we've seen Mary. Two times she's at Jesus' feet. The first time she's there learning, right? The second time she's there pouring out her emotions, right? She's weeping at his feet. Go forward one chapter in, in the Gospel of John. I already alluded to this, but in, in John chapter 12, six days, verse 1, before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. This is, this is the week leading up to his death, okay? He, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave him a dinner for him there. Martha served. Of course Martha serves. That's what Martha does, right? Martha serves. Martha serves. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and where did she go? She anointed his feet. Three times we see Mary with Jesus. She's at his feet learning. She's at his feet pouring out her emotions. She's at, her, she's at his feet worshiping. Mary is the picture of devotion, <laughs> Mary is the picture of devotion for us. Go back with me now to Luke chapter 10. So here we have this woman who is compelled to be with Jesus. We have another woman who's her sister, who probably is the older sister, and that probably factors into this too, because older sisters, after all, are just the biggest bosses there ever were, right? And and so now you've got Martha, and as I said, she's ticked. She's ticked. Literally in verse 40, it says this, that she was distracted with much serving. I want you, if you mark in your Bible, to just circle that word distracted and put this note there. That literally means to be dragged away. It means to be dragged away. And and, and there's something I want to bring to bear here for us this morning. She's dragged away. She's dragged away by her serving. Dragged implies that she doesn't want to go willingly to serve, right? She's doing something that you and I can relate to, what's going on in her mind. There's this battle in her mind. She knows she should be at Jesus' feet. She knows she needs to be with Jesus. She wants to be with Jesus, but there is this compelling thing that she has to just do something. Have you ever been there, Christian? I've always got something to do. I've always got something to do. I I want to be with Jesus, but but I've got something I, I have to do. And in this case, it's a good thing. Would you agree with me that serving and caring for Jesus is a good thing? Is that a good thing? This is a good thing, but it is distracting her. It is pulling her away from the one thing. Think about your life. Think about the list I had you make at the beginning. There's a lot of good things on that list, aren't there? There's a lot of good things on that list. Getting a paycheck, good thing, right? Taking care of your house, good thing, right? Following your kids to sports events, good thing, right? Whatever your list is, those are are good things. But here's the thing with Martha. Martha. She's so pulled away and she's so conflicted by, by the pull of her life and what she wants to do and what she knows to do that, that she doesn't deal with it properly. She doesn't deal with it properly. And I want, to, I want to point this out to you. She boils up in frustration. Do you see it there at the end of verse 40? Verse 40, at the end of verse 40, those are the words of a frustrated woman. Right? Right? That's, that's the kind of thing like you would expect from your wife or your mother or maybe your sister or sister-in-law on Thanksgiving Day, right? How many of you serve Thanksgiving dinner at your house? How many of you love that whole experience in the kitchen and everything and the frustration of, of, you know, of, the, of the dad coming, hey, when are we going to eat? It's halftime of the football game. Let's get this meal in here so we can go back and watch the second half, right? priorities woman, right? There's the pressure, right? There's the pressure of getting it on and getting it done right, and all of that goes along with that. And on top of that, here is her sister who is not carrying her fair share. She's being godly. How dare she be godly at a moment like this? Why would you do that? We have to serve That's what servers do. We serve. And I want to make a couple key points here, and I want you to catch these. For some of us in this room, doing is always more important than devotion. It's the way we're wired. Doing is more important than devotion. And when doing is more important than devotion, we see ourselves as indispensable because we're the doers. We're the doers. Where would you be without the doers? And when you start to see yourself as indispensable and more important than others, you can fall into the same two traps that Mary, Martha fell into here. And I want you to see the two traps that she falls into. Number one, when you, when you see yourself as more important and doing is more important than devotion. The first trap that you might fall into is, is that you can assign wrong motives to God and to others. Is that you can assign wrong motives to God and to others. Notice the wrong motive that she assigns to Jesus here. In verse 40. Lord, don't you care? Just, just let that sink in. Here is a woman who loves Jesus who who in in, in a matter of less than a year is going to find out how much Jesus cares when he shows up to whenever their brother dies. And and she literally can utter the words to Jesus. You don't care. Don't you care? And don't you care about what my sister's doing? And don't you care about all this work that's got to be done? Jesus, why have you stopped caring about this? friend?" Let me ask you a question. Has God ever stopped caring? Has He? Do you ever feel like He has stopped caring? You want to know why? We're going to find out why in just a moment. But here we find that when doing is more important than devotion, it's easy for us to assign wrong motive to God. And she's assigned wrong motive to Mary. She has assumed that Mary is like the most evil person on the face of the earth right now. Hasn't she? My sister's got problems, Jesus, and you don't care. But there's a second trap. And this is the one that's really scary. When we get this lost this far, when we lose this much perspective... We do the unthinkable, and we would, we would never admit to doing this, but we think this way. Our hearts go this way, and, and, and Martha absolutely words it. Notice the last line of that verse. Tell her then to help me. It's prefaced with the word Lord. Do, do you get the audacity of this statement? Lord, Lord of my life, the one who's master over all, you tell her what she needs to do. Who's giving the orders here? Who's giving the orders here? Martha is absolutely looking at the Lord of all creation, the Lord of the universe, looking him in the eye, and she is saying, you make my sister do this. You make her do what I want her to do. Whoa. Do you see how audacious that is? And it's a trap that you and I can fall into. When when we've lost perspective, when we think we're the center of our universe, when we think that our doing is the most important, when we think that we're indispensable to God, watch out because we're in danger of trying to give God orders. And I've got news for you, that never works. It never works to give God the orders. She is so self-important at this point that she's now angry with her sister and she is telling God what to do here. You say, I would never do that. Oh, I don't know. God, eliminate this problem from my life. God, take this out of my life. God, make my children better. God, give me a better house. God, give me a better job. Isn't that what we're doing? We're telling God what to do? But we do it under the guise of Praying, asking, right? When really, a lot of our praying is just trying to give God orders. But I want you to see what a true friend does. <laughs> Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times. And Jesus loves these people, and He's a dear friend. If I'm Jesus and she has just said that to me, oh boy. Remember whenever James and John said to Jesus, should we call down fire? This might be the time to do it. This might be the time to do it. No, but notice Jesus. Verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Now, Jesus doesn't always answer and address people by using their name twice. Twice. And, and, and the significance of this is, is that the repeating of a name is a sign of intensified emotion. In this case, it's not anger. Notice his next words. They're insightful words. He looks right to the heart. The, the same Jesus who looked right past Martha's exterior and saw this frustrated woman and saw this woman who's upset with him and upset with her sister, he, he looks right beyond that to look at her heart and he says this, you're anxious and you're really troubled. You're anxious and you're really troubled. You might be hiding your anxiety or you think you're hiding it really well, but you're not hiding it from God. Your heart that's troubled, you might think you're hiding it from your family, from your spouse, from your kids, from your coworkers, from your neighbors, but, but, but here's the thing, you're not hiding it from God. And he sees it, and he doesn't just say, you know what? You should probably go to the doctor and get some anti-anxiety meds here. He doesn't say that. You know what he says to her in verse 42? He says, you need to get your life in order. And he's not saying that in a rebuking way, but but he's just pointing out. He, He says in verse 42, one thing is necessary. One thing is needful. There's one thing that, that, that you're missing here, and it's the most important thing, Martha. In fact, Mary has chosen the good portion. The good portion. Where, where does that come from? Well, the Romans, the Romans had this, this idea and this belief in, in the Roman society that, that in every meal, there was one part of that meal that was the best part of the meal, Imagine, if you will, a big piece of fillet. There's always one bite that's the best bite, right? And that's that's what he's talking about here. He says there's one thing that's necessary. And and, and it's just stop here for a second, friend, and consider what is the most important thing to you right now. There's only one thing that really matters. There's only one thing that really matters. And Jesus is about to cut to the heart of it here. You know, the the one thing, the best thing is the thing that Mary did. And what is it that Mary did? She spent time at Jesus' feet listening to his word. Isn't that what she did? That's the one thing. That's the one thing. It, it, that's that is the thing that Jesus said. And you're like, I knew you were going to say that pastor Dan. You're a pastor, we're in church. Of course you're going to tell us we have to have our devotions. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. This is what the Lord of all is saying to all of us this morning. Here's the thing. It's being with me. That's the most important thing. It's not how many times you walk through the door of the church. It's not. It's not how many people you handed a tract to. It's not. It's not how many old ladies you helped across the street. It's how much time did you spend with me? Because here's what Jesus knows: the more time you spend with me, the more you'll be like me. The more time you spend with me, the more you'll be like me, and all that other stuff will sort itself out. Jesus patiently points Martha to this truth. Hey Martha, serving is good. It's not a bad thing. But hearing and obeying God's word is better. It's best. Doing is important, but it's not more important than hearing. And friend, this morning, and in all the doing, in all the doing that we have to do, the grind of your job, the laundry. The dirty dishes, the getting your kids here and there, the the coming to serve at church, the the mowing of your grass, (laughs) the going to the doctor, and I could keep going on with the list, right? In all the doing, it's easy to get like Martha and be distracted and feel like we're in a tug of war and we're in the middle. You with me on that? It's really easy. And here's the question. Am I going to do the most important thing? Jesus has told us. I told you at the beginning of this message. There's not going to be any question about what the one thing is. The question is going to be whether or not I really believe it. The question isn't whether or not it really is the most important thing. Jesus said it was, so it has to be, right? Hello? Nod your head yes. You awake? If Jesus said it's the most important thing, is it the most important thing? The question is, will will I submit to that? And here's the thing. Does Jesus ever ask any of his followers to do anything that's not for their good? He's asking us to do something that's for our good. He's saying the best thing is is to be here at my feet. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, that's not going to get the bills paid, PD. PD. That's a legitimate thing, right? It's not going to get the bills paid, PD. It's not going to solve the issues that I'm dealing with in my life. It's not going to fix my marriage, PD. It's not going to take care of this problem, PD. Here's what I know. God way back, way back in the book of Deuteronomy said this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God never intended for you and I to live this life apart from fellowship with him. He never intended it. In fact, it was his great intention that we would live in fellowship with him. Go back to the Garden of Eden. How did it all begin? Man man, and God walked together in the garden, didn't they? They were in fellowship. And what broke that? Sin. Sin. It's what's breaking it today. Sin. The fact that we live in a broken world that's affected by sin is part of that pull that we feel that we're pulled from God. But God's intention is that we would be in fellowship with him. Food is good and necessary, but God's word is even more necessary is what the writer of Deuteronomy is telling us. Paying a mortgage is good and necessary, but being with God is even more important. Serving in Awana, being a deacon in the church, or a trustee, or, or leading the music, or, or being a part of the worship team, those are all good things, but they're not the best thing. They're not the best thing. But I want to point out to you that Mar- Martha did get it. Martha did get it. We already looked at John 11. I want to go back to John chapter 11. Because just before she goes and gets married, we find out that Martha really did learn her lesson. She got it. Now, we saw in John chapter 12 that she's still a servant, right? And I I want you to get this. Some of us in this room, this is the way God has hardwired us to be servants, right? Serving is not the, the enemy here this morning, okay? It's just the priority. Okay? I want you to see that Martha did get it. So, When Jesus shows up, and and here's the thing, Jesus intentionally waited to show up because he found out Lazarus was sick, word got to him that Lazarus was sick, and he tells his disciples, we're going to wait. And the disciples are like, say, what? No, Lazarus is sick, Jesus. Did you not hear that? Like, you need to get down there now. He's like, no, we're going to wait. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Boy, that's a real loving friend. Yeah, because he's got some things to teach Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so he shows up in verse 17, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Four days is, is really significant because the Jews believed that for the first three days that, that somebody was dead, there was a possibility they might come back to life. The fourth day, he was, they, the Jews knew he was dead. Dickens would have said it this way, dead as a doornail. Okay, He was dead. And so now Jesus shows up, and, and he meets with Martha, and she comes to meet him, verse 20. And, and this is how I know that Martha's has changed here. In verse 20, if, you're, if you have this funeral gathering at your house, you have a lot of people who have showed up at your house. Typically, what would Martha be doing? What would she be doing? Old Martha would have been doing What? She'd have been serving the meal, right? She'd have been making sure. What does Martha do when she hears Jesus is on the way? She goes. Martha learned her lesson. And she says this in verse 21. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And, And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then Jesus makes this great statement that should be read at every believer's funeral right at the graveside where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That's our hope, friend. And notice he asked Martha the question, do you believe this in verse 26? And get her response. This is a woman who gets it now. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. There are two great confessions of who Christ is in the New Testament. One is by Peter. The other one is by Martha. She got it. And that tells me this, that there's hope for you and for me. As we get ready to leave this morning, there's hope for us. As I said, this is not a message that's anti-service, anti-responsibility. I'm not saying to you this morning, you don't have to take any more responsibility. You just have to sit at Jesus' feet. That will not pay your mortgage. Right? What I am saying to you this morning, what God's word is saying to us is this, that the best thing is the most important thing, and we always got to do the best thing first. Because here's the thing. Too often we are ruled by the tyranny of the urgent. You know what that is? Everybody around us is saying that their need is the most important need. This is why women, when you go to the bathroom, all four or five of your children show up at the door. That is the tyranny of the urgent. You're like, I'm in here because it's urgent. Some of you will get that later. It's the tyranny of the urgent. Everybody around you thinks that they should be number one on your priority list. And there's only one person who should be number one on your priority list. Psalm 63, verse 1. David, he had to be reminded of this. He's in the wilderness in Judah, he's on the run. And he says this, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Literally, he's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And you would think that his main desire would be give me some water. No, God, all the more I understand I need you. And isn't it interesting that when God puts us in the rough circumstances of life, it isn't necessarily so that we can focus on just how great we had it before. It's just so that we would focus on how great he is and how much we need him. This isn't a critique of the type A personality, you know, the one that goes 100 miles an hour with their hair on fire. If you're here this morning and you're a quiet contemplative type, you're not better than a type A person. And type A people, you're not better than the quiet contemplative people. What it is, though, is a call to whatever type you are that being with Jesus is the main thing. Being with Jesus is the main thing. And so, I'd ask you take a look at that list that I had you make again at the beginning. And if the main thing isn't the main thing, there's hope. (laughs) If a Martha can change, you and I can change, right? Every once in a while, I don't know how to pray. You ever ever been that way where you don't know how to pray? My wife, several years ago, bought me a book. It's a book of prayers. And I came across this prayer this week from a German guy from 1380. That's like a long time ago. And this is the prayer that he wrote. And I want to just share it with you this morning. Grant me, O most sweet and loving Jesus, to rest in thee. Above every creature, above all health and beauty, above all glory and honor, above all power and dignity, above all knowledge and refinement, above all riches and arts, above all joy and exaltation, above all fame and praise, above all sweetness and consolation, above all hope and promise, above all gifts and presents which thou art able to bestow or infuse, above all joy and gladness which the mind receives and feels, finally, Above all, that falls short of Thyself, O Thou my God. That's where Jesus wants us. When all this stuff that we think that satisfies us, when we realize that there is no greater joy than just Jesus Himself, than just Jesus Himself. And so, Father, this morning. As you've had to do in my own heart this week, I pray for these, my friends, that you would point out to us where our priorities are really screwed up. And I pray that you would do something we don't deserve, but God, I beg you to do this. That you would put a desire in our hearts that can only be satisfied by you and your word. A desire that can only be satisfied when we spend time with Jesus. Life is busy, it's crazy. There's always something to do. There's always somebody who needs our attention, whether it be our boss, whether it be somebody in our family, whether it, be, whether it be a friend of ours, whatever it is, there's always somebody who needs our attention. And we can feel so pulled. So this morning I pray that you just slow us down that you just hit pause for us that we might, again, be reacquainted with you and the beauty of your word and how it satisfies our souls. For those in this room, Father, who have never experienced what it means to be satisfied in Jesus, may today be the day that they see Jesus as their one thing. Make us hungry for your word, not just on Monday morning, but Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and the rest of this week, Father. May we delight in you. Give us courage to to reorient our lives so that our lives would reflect those things that are important, not the things that are urgent. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.